Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. And welcome into another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. As promised, I am Ashley Bastock here with Chris Fedor. And folks, like Hayden Grove said, we are going to be ramping up the podcasts this month with the Cavs officially in the playoffs. And Chris, I know we have plenty here to talk about from availability today in regards to previewing the Knicks series. So let's get into it. Since you and Hayden did a nice overview of the series yesterday, um, I want to spend some time talking about this story that you published this morning. Um, the headline over at Cleveland.com, the twists and turns of the NBA have led J.B. Bickerstaff to Cleveland, the, quote, perfect coach for these Cavs. Um, really in-depth story by Chris kind of going into J.B.'s background. I mean, I love stories like this that have all the color and um, how you really reported this out. So I guess let's start with the crux of this story. Like, why do players, why does this organization think J.B. is the, quote, perfect coach for this team right now? So I think that's a key point, Ashley. I think it's right now, this group of players, right? And I think it's interesting because if you remember Ty Lu, after the LeBron era and the Cavs were making that transition into the rebuild, and they had to because they had no other choice. Right. You know, you looked at Ty and you said, that's not the type of team for Ty. If you're going to have somebody like Ty Lu with his acumen, his credentials, you want him around a championship-level team. Not right. a team that's going to develop. Not a team that's going to take time. Not a team where it's going to be hands-on stuff. You want him managing personalities. You want him in a seven-game series flexing his his muscles and coming up with these different ATOs. That was Ty's bread and butter. That's where he thrived with those kinds of teams. And, and that's not everybody. You know what I mean? And once the Cavs went into a rebuild... You were looking at Ty and you're like, that's not really the team for him. That's right. not what's going to bring out the best in him. And I think JB is somebody who is great at instilling a culture. He's great at getting young guys to buy in. He's great at communicating with guys. And I think that's really, really important because when the Cavs were coming off the LeBron era, they were shifting into a different transitional phase. And they needed somebody like JB. They needed somebody who was going to get this team to play hard. They needed somebody who was going to build an identity. They needed somebody who the players could trust. They needed somebody who the players could talk to. And he's been all of that for these guys. And one of the things that stands out to me about him, Ashley, is that whether you're a 35-year-old guy who has accomplished a lot throughout the course of your career, or you're a 20-year-old coming into the NBA for the first time, 
Like, JB knows how to talk to everybody. No matter yeah. what you've accomplished, no matter your age, no matter your background. And that's the thing about coaches. You can't communicate with guys the same way. You have to find a way that you can communicate with each one individually that's going to resonate with them. And in reporting this story, everybody that I talked to brought up JB's communication and how um, it didn't matter who he was talking to. And it didn't matter what the individual player had accomplished throughout the course of their career. He was able to get through to Ricky Rubio and Kevin Love just as he's able to get through to Isaac Okoro and Darius Garland. And I think that's really, really important because that's the kind of blend that the Cavs have. That's the kind of blend that most rebuilding teams have. A mix of young guys and veterans. And for me too, like the other big takeaway from your story is not just that he can talk to all these different players because it it is true. Like no matter who you talk to, that's what people brought up. But it's also the situational awareness in terms of communication. Like when I first read your story, it struck me about, you know, in the early part of the season when they they would kind of fall into that habit of trying to flip the switch, like on right. the road against Boston, at home against the Knicks, um, in Los Angeles, and during that long road trip. And you wrote that, like, JB's approach really varied depending on kind of this quick analysis right. of what he thought this, thought this group needed in any particular moment in those games. And I think that's a really important point because I think in talking to JB, and I sat down with JB I think it was the beginning of March when he was closing in on win number 200 because I was just knowing that I was doing a piece on his journey and if he was going to be the coach to lead these guys to the playoffs that was a story of itself um so when I sat down with him the one thing that that he talked about that he wanted to make clear that he thinks because I asked him I said what do you think separates you how do you Mm -hmm. want to be known as a coach and he thought about it for a minute And one of the things that he said to me, he said, my dad always told me that you have to be adaptable. You have to be adaptable based on the personnel that you have, and you have to be adaptable based on the style of team that you have, and you have to be adaptable based on, like, what's going on throughout the course of the season. Um, And you have to read players, and you have to figure out, like, what is it that they need at this moment from me? And I think he has shown that, right? Um, If you think back to... Um, the the five-game losing streak where the Cavs mm-hmm. kind of like lost their way on the defensive end of the floor and they had that heart-to-heart in Milwaukee, kind of like a watershed moment of the season mid-November. Like that was him kind of like getting into these guys. He said they had a fat cat mentality. Like he <laughs> called them out for yeah. getting um, a little bit too chesty based on what they had accomplished early in the season, right? So that was an example of him like going into the guys and trying to hold them accountable and saying, hey, like, look, what you're doing is not working. You've got to change this. And then there are other examples of him being lighthearted and loose where he cracks a joke in the middle of a halftime speech or they have a water balloon fight in the middle of January where they're in this road trip that is a hellish road trip and everybody is just like beaten down and worn down and exhausted and he just decides to have a water balloon fight. You know what I mean? So it's like there are examples, enough examples of when he's got to be businesslike and serious, he can do that. And he has done that. But when it's time to get loose and lighthearted because that's what the team needs because the 82-game grind really gets to you, 
he's able to do that too. And I, I don't know what it is about him, but he has a great read on this team. And it seems like he um, finds a way to push the right buttons at the right time uh, to get these guys to respond to him. And I, I don't think everybody does that. So it seems like along those lines and pushing buttons, like the other part of this story, which I, I think anybody who even half pays attention to the Cavs or the NBA knows at least a little bit about J.B. Bickerstaff's background, right? Like, they know his father is Bernie Bickerstaff and <laughs> the history that Bernie himself has in the NBA and what J.B. grew up with. But I was, like, really fascinated to kind of hear these firsthand stories in your story and J.B. talking about this and what that time was like because the one part that stuck with me was talking about being around those players at such a young age on yeah. his dad's team that – it's it's like they made him, them real people to him that like yeah. he's always thought of these guys as real people and obviously now he's not a kid anymore he's an adult who's older than his players but I, I always just thought that was interesting because I think like you know from our job too like I I try to talk to players like they're real people and not like they're these yeah. you know stars so so I think that's like a big part of his communication this like x factor with his communication too is just this background and his dad's career too. I've talked to a lot of people about this point, Ashley. In the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, you win with people, right? You have the draft coming around the corner when it comes to the Browns. You're not just drafting a skill set. You're not just drafting a whole bunch of traits within a guy. You're right. drafting a person. And that guy's got to fit in your locker room. And that guy has to stand for the right kinds of things. And it's hard, right? Because you can't cut these guys open and see what they're made of. But that's what it comes down to in any sport. You're winning with people. You're managing people. You're trying to get people to buy into what you're saying, and you're trying to get people to trust you. And everybody that I talked to for this story said the same thing. JB's a player's coach. And I said, hey, look, like that can go the wrong way. People can take right. that the wrong way. So what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that? Can you expand on that? And they all said that it was a good thing, like, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was during the early era of John Beeline and things were not going well. <laughs> and I remember talking to one player and I said, like, what is it about John Beeline that is not resonating with you guys? And this player said to me, he doesn't talk to us like we're people. He right. talks down on us. He, like, commands us to do things. Because John Beeline came from a place College. where it was all about him. Yeah. Like, what he said, go, what, what, whatever he said in that moment, that was going to go. I mean, um, you hear crazy stories about his, having covered Michigan, like, I yeah. mean, even his days back in West Virginia. I remember hearing a story about a West Virginia player drove an hour away to a TV station because he had earrings on in an interview oh and God. didn't want... Like, if John Beeline saw it, he was going to get in trouble. There was going to be some kind of, like, team punishment. It was in a story in The Athletic yeah. a few years ago. Like, I mean, there are stories like that about him. It was very different than covering college where you are the end-all, be-all of that's a program right. as a coach. And right. that's not the case in the NBA. You're not that's there to teach players in the same way. That's the thing. Like, in college, the face of Michigan was going to be John Beeline. In college, the face of West Virginia was going to be John Beeline. And that's the culture that he came from. That's what he knew. And in some ways... He was a little bit too old to make um, the right kind of adjustments that he would need to make in order to manage personalities in a player's league. 
And and because JB grew up around the game, I think he has always understood it's not about me. This is a player's league. Um, I saw it with my dad, right? I, I saw it um, when I was an assistant coach early in my career. Um, I saw it when I was an interim coach and I was dealing with James Harden. Like, that's one thing that has, I think, always helped JB is the kind of teams that he's been around, the kind of players that he's been around, and just the knowledge that he has gained over the years about, okay, I'm in the shadows. That's fine. I'm more comfortable that way anyway. And it's all about the players in this league. So what can I do to make things easier and better for them? All right, let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk more about J.B. Bickerstaff and the series, the preparation part of it. Um, Chris also will give an Isaac Okoro update from what we heard from media availability today. Um, go check out that story on J.B. Bickerstaff on cleveland.com slash Cavs. And also while you're there, um, be sure to sign up to become an insider. If you click the blue bar at the top of the Cavs page, you will become you can become a subtext insider get text from chris most of his insider information goes there before it's on the site before it's even on his twitter um or you can text 216-208-4499 to sign up for that as well um and we will be right back shortly when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And welcome back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. Ashley Bastock here with Chris Fedor. And Chris, let's talk about J.B. Bickerstaff now from this idea of preparing for a seven-game series, especially having to do this. I know you and Hayden talked about this a little bit yesterday, but doing this against Tom Thibodeau, who is a head coach who has a lot of playoff experience and experience making adjustments and the kind of chess game that the postseason becomes. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see this. Um, Me too. Because when I was having the conversation with JB about how he wanted to be known as a coach and what he thinks makes a good coach, he, in no way, did he bring up schemes, X's and O's, right. adjustments, lineup decisions, play calls, sets, timeout usage. He basically said, Chris, like, if you're in the NBA, if you're a coach in the NBA, if you've gotten that far in your coaching career, you can do that stuff. Who can't do that? Right. You know what I mean? So I'm fascinated to see, okay, this is a different level for JB. This is a different level of expectation for JB. This is a different kind of matchup for JB against Tom Thibodeau, who has devised some of the greatest defensive game plans against some of the greatest offensive talents in NBA history. 
So we know JB can motivate people, right? We know that he can build a culture of sacrifice and selflessness and accountability. I'm fascinated and really, really interested to see how he handles all the stuff that the playoffs are going to throw at him in a seven-game series. How quick can he make the adjustments? Can he make them in-game? Or is it something where those adjustments come in between games? Yeah. Um, what's he going to do when it comes to his lineups and his rotations? How long is the leash going to be for somebody like Isaac Okoro? How long is the leash going to be for somebody like Ricky Rubio, who hasn't been very good since coming off that torn ACL? Those are all the kinds of decisions that JB is now going to be faced with that allows him, I think, to take the next step as a head coach. And it's something that I think the Cavs, Ashley, are monitoring very, very closely when it comes to JB. Yeah, because, I mean, when you talk about the NBA, like this idea of, you know, I think broadly there is an idea of, is JB the guy that's going to eventually lead this team to a title? Or is JB the guy before the guy? And he kind of even, like, alluded to that, I thought, a little bit on Sunday about most of the time in the NBA, it's the latter, right? Like when you Mm -hmm. are on a team that's part of a rebuild, it's not often, he said, like you get to see your work through that rebuild essentially. And he's experienced that to some extent. I know he talked about like in Houston, he was coaching for his life, you know? And, and I do think that part of it is interesting because that question, I mean, it's not like we're going to get a definitive answer on that this year, probably, right? Unless the Cavs make some miracle run that no one is expecting that is highly improbable. But I do think like this is a big part of that because I don't think, I think much like with players and we talk about replicating playoff experience, like JB doesn't have a lot of this head coaching experience himself in terms of making these adjustments. And I mean, I'm always fascinated by that in these seven game scenarios because that's what it becomes about. It becomes about those in-game adjustments, those small adjustments, the big adjustments. What are you going to throw at another team when you have to win four games against them in a very short amount of time? And I think this is going to go, you know, it's not going to be the end-all be-all of his time here in Cleveland, of course, but it's going to be a big chunk of them getting to see him do this for the first time. Especially, Ashley, when you're talking about a 4-5 series. Yeah. I think the Cavs have proven throughout the course of the regular season that they are better than the Knicks. And I think they should beat the Knicks in a seven-game series. But I would also admit that, you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't Milwaukee playing against an eight seed. You know what I mean? This is a very formidable opponent. We've seen Jalen Brunson be great in the postseason. We've seen Julius Randle be great in the postseason. Um, Emmanuel quickly may be the sixth man of the year, and we all know how much the Cavs um, bench has struggled throughout the course of the regular season. So advantage Knicks there. Um, Tom Thibodeau has seen more than JB. He has done more and accomplished more than JB, especially in the postseason. Um, There's some uncertainty about how is Darius Garland going to handle the moment? How is Evan Mobley going to handle the moment? Um, So there are questions about the Cavs, no doubt about it. And I think that makes the series a little bit more competitive. I think it makes it a little bit closer. I also think you have to look in some ways at the regular season matchup and say stylistically there are some things that the Knicks do, especially when it comes to rebounding and three-point shooting and stylistically offensively that could give the Cavs problems. So what I'm saying is I think this is almost a coin flip series. And when you're talking about that kind of series, you're looking for somebody to give you any kind of advantage. 
home court's going to be an advantage for the Cavs. That could be the difference between them winning and losing the series, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. But you're also looking at somebody like JB, the coaching matchup. Can he get an edge or some kind of edge or make it close enough with Tom Thibodeau where it doesn't swing in the favor of the Knicks and they take that edge? You know what I mean? So yeah. when you're talking about this kind of series, a very, very competitive series, a very closely matched series, maybe even evenly matched according to some people, you're talking about the smallest things that could be a separator between winning and losing. Yeah, and I mean, I think too, and you guys talked about this a little bit yesterday, I think everyone at this point knows like what Donovan Mitchell is going to look like in the postseason, yep. but for me, like the biggest question is Darius Garland, it's it's Evan Mobley, it's these guys that you just know, like knowing Tibbs' experience, that these are going to be the ones he's going after. Like, of course, like I think Donovan is almost to the caliber of, that's a player you expect him to get his, and how are you going to stop all these other younger guys who have never been in this situation and from anybody from being a superstar? That's the thing that, that I'm wondering, because I think it could go either direction. Um, I think the Knicks could look at Donovan and say, all right, that's the guy that we are going to try and load up to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Ty was notorious for this back in the day during the playoffs. He was like, you know what? I'm taking away your best player, and I'm going to make the others beat me. And I don't think those MFs can beat me. And that's the way yeah. that he always phrased it. Um, and you saw that when the Cavs played against Toronto and DeRozan, and you saw that when they played against any team in the playoffs. So that is like one approach that I could see Tom Thibodeau taking saying you know what we're going to load up on Donovan we're going to send multiple defenders in his direction we're going to try and crowd him and just like take the ball out of his hands and make him as uncomfortable as possible Um, but I think there's another direction that they could go and JB kind of talked about this earlier today at practice he said when we played against the Knicks they um, from a schematic standpoint they approached it different um, kinds of ways in different um, meetings that we had against them And I think the other one that they could try is just saying, we think Darius won't handle um, the pressure as well as Donovan. So let's make him feel that pressure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Donovan has seen defensive coverage. Donovan has seen a lot of pressure from opponents. And at this point in his career, he knows how to better handle that. Let's test Darius's handle. Let's test his poise. Let's test his maturity. Let's test his decision-making. And maybe Darius is the one that they say he's going to get all the extra attention just to see how he handles that. I'm fascinated to see which direction they're going to go. And I'm also fascinated from the Cavs' like defensive standpoint, just how the Knicks play. And I think you were the one today, Chris, that asked them about they don't get a ton of assists, right? Like they they in general don't. It's it's a different style of basketball, and it's in some ways harder to defend. Evan Mobley today was one it's like you you have to play the full 24 seconds because they're looking and they're kicking it out to the best possible shot at the last minute. Like they're very slow and methodical on offense and I think fans may hear that and be like, "Oh, then it should be easier." It's like that actually makes it more of a challenge in today's game, I feel like. Yeah, I I think it does um because it's different. Um I also think because of the personnel that they have they can run that kind of style, right? Like, okay, we need somebody to just go create a bucket because we don't have anything going on the offensive end. Let's give it to Jalen Brunson. Okay, 
somebody else needs to go create a bucket because we don't have a lot of ball movement. It's kind of sticking. We'll just give it to Julius, and he'll create something out of nothing. So they have the individual players to operate that way offensively um, and thrive enough to give the Cavs some problems. I mean, think about the most recent meeting between the Cavs and the Knicks, and I know it's not a great gauge because Isaac Okoro wasn't out there and Jared Allen wasn't out there, but the Cavs had nobody that could contain Jalen Brunson. Nobody. Mm -hmm. That's going to be Isaac's responsibility. So he's going to have to be healthy enough and effective enough to do that. Lamar Stevens tried, and he picked up two fouls in three minutes. Karis LeVert tried, and didn't work. (laughs) You don't want Darius to have that matchup, right? You don't want Donovan to have that matchup because they're going to play 40-plus minutes. They can't expend their energy that way. Exactly. They're going to be so responsible for what the Cavs do on the offensive end that they're just going to be physically and mentally fried by the end of maybe one game in this series, if that's their assignment. So um, because they have those individual players and they feel good enough about how those guys can operate um, against any defense, really, uh, it does make it a little bit tricky from the Cavs' perspective. And one last JB point here before we kind of give the the Isaac Okoro update. Um, I've been fascinated this last, like, couple days. I almost said last week. Time is not real, but it hasn't been a week. (laughs) But ever since we've, like, found out that this little friendship that's kind of ongoing between JB Bickerstaff and Terry Francona, um, I I love it because, like, these two guys to me, they're just so similar in their upbringing and everything like that to me like I'm not surprised to kind of see them get along like as well as they have and they had meeting and I know Chris JB didn't say much about it when we talked about it on Sunday but um Joe Noga wrote a story about Terry Francona kind of talking about it uh mm. a little bit more and it sounds like you know there might be some Tito, Tito said he was proud of them and they might go and visit the Guardians one day it sounded like JB was talking about this is all hearsay of course because Tito's relaying the conversation um, but yeah, I just think it's like really cool to kind of see two, two of these coaches just bounce ideas off each other in like, you know, a broader term, but it, it is fascinating to me when guys like this can kind of become friends in this way, I think. Yeah. And I think the other thing to look at too, Ashley, is that, okay, so you're somebody like JB Bickerstaff. Um, you have a recognition that there are things that you don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you have an understanding that there are things that you can learn about going into the postseason. And I think it's fine for any coach or any player or any general manager to lean on people that they trust. You know, when it comes to the NBA draft, Kobe Altman leans on the same person beyond the guys that are in the Cavs front office. He leans on the same person every single year because it's the guy that he trusts most when it comes to basketball. Because he's like, that guy's really smart. That guy has identified talent. That guy has been around the game for a long, long time. Let me see what he thinks. And it's the same thing when it comes to J.B. Bickerstaff. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he um, hasn't reached out at this point to, like, David Fisdale, one of his mentors, right? And, like, Terry Francona has been in how many playoff games? Like, Terry Francona has won how many championships? So any kind of knowledge that you can get from smart people, I think is a good idea this time of year. Yeah. 
Um, so let's talk about the Isaac Okoro part of it all, since, you know, he is going to be, I think, a big part of this series and his status to keep an eye on. And first of all, practice today, he did some things in practice. Of course, we couldn't watch their practice, but we did hear the crowd noise they were pumping in and how they were preparing for that way. Well, guys talked about that as well. Another um, JB preparing type note just to remember. Um, but it just seems like, I know you had sources tell you that, the Cavs are optimistic about his progress so far. So I guess what's your like gut feeling right now of, of what we're going to see out of him? Yeah, that's the thing. And, and I keep trying to uh, make this point, even when it comes to Julius Randle, um, as you know, Ashley, when it comes to sports, like there is a difference between being healthy enough to play and being healthy enough to be effective. Right? There's a difference between just being able to play and then playing as effectively as what you're used to. So right. I think there's a little bit of uncertainty on that front when it comes to the Cavs. I have reported that a source told me, um, and I've had multiple sources tell me the same thing, that it is a bone bruise that Isaac is dealing with that is causing the soreness. Um, but I also had somebody that I trust tell me um, in Orlando before I think the first Orlando game? Yeah, I think it was the first Orlando game that if the Cavs hadn't clinched to that point, clinched the playoff spot because they were still fighting for home court at this yeah. time. Had they not clinched the playoff spot, then they might have approached it different with Isaac. Mm. They might have had him play until then. But I think part of the reason why they've been so cautious and they've been slow playing this is because they've been able to. Because they haven't had anything to gain at the regular season. And um, and they look at Isaac and say, yeah, we get it. You want to play. You love playing. But we need you as close to 100% for the postseason against the New York Knicks as we can possibly get. Because you're our best chance to slow down Jalen Brunson, who is the most important player that the Knicks have. Um, so I think that's part of why the Cavs have, have taken the approach that they've taken when it comes to Isaac and every indication that I get. And, and this is tricky, right? Because like this thing could flare up after he exerts himself tomorrow in practice. Mm -hmm. But every indication that I have right now is that he is going to be out there for game one on Saturday. And the Cavs are preparing as if he's going to be out there when it comes to lineups and matchups and scouting reports and stuff like that. So it is something that is bothering him but I just don't think it's bothering him to the point where he's going to miss his playoff debut. That's not the sense that I get anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, the whole would he have continued to play because he, he came out of that game against the Rockets against when the they Rockets, clinched, right. and we did not see him again. Like, right. I mean, that to me is like, it's it's the smart thing to do. I mean, I know you wrote, Isaac wanted to play 82 games this season, but it would not have been smart for him to try to do that. And I think, too, when you're talking about an injury like a bone bruise, like, there's no fast track to healing that. Like, no. it really does just need time and rest, usually. And when you talk about his role and the style of defensive player he is, like, it's understandable why something like that could be such a bother. It's almost like last year when we saw Jared Allen go through the finger injury and you look at how Jared Allen plays and it's like, well, an injury like that is so big because think about how Jared uses his verticality and it's not just dunking. It's how yep. he's going to block. It's how he's going to alter shots. It's the same thing for Isaac and this bone bruise and how he defends. So I, I'm with you. I mean, I think it's smart to just 
let him sit now as long as they have. And it, it makes sense to me at least why there is that feeling of optimism because it sounds like knowing Isaac too, if he would have had to play more mm-hmm. in the regular season, he probably would have tried to. Yeah, and the other thing is, this is something that has been bothersome for a while now. I remember telling my uh, Cavs insiders on subtext, maybe middle of March, early March, I said, hey, look, like, Isaac was just icing his knee three days in a row after shoot-around after practice. This is something that I'm going to monitor, and I'm going to see if it's going to continue. But I remember, like, him having the ice bag around his knee and walking out of the arena, and I said, well, that's different. You know, these guys obviously try and get as much treatment after practice, after shoot-around as possible. But Isaac is somebody who is a little bit different. And when I saw that, I was like, hey, man, what's going on there? And he just kind of, like, shrugged and walked away. (laughs) And the minute that he did that, I was like, The telltale sign. Yes, that's a telltale (laughs) sign that he doesn't want me to know what it is. And the Cavs are notorious for being very, very difficult when it comes to injuries to try and get information out of them on that front. And I understand why they take that approach. I really do. Um, but but it's something that obviously he's been dealing with for a while. And I bring that up because, you know, we're almost in the middle of April. So you would think right. he is getting close to being um, over this because I can't imagine it lasting more than a month. Now, it could, but you would think that he's closer to the end of this thing bothering him. Yeah, and and JB even when he left that Rockets game, of course, got asked about it after, and he he characterized it as the same thing that it was something that had been bothering him for a while now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all those things are just adding up. That hopefully it's it's now at least gotten slightly better to the point, like you said, that it's not just playing, but that he can be effective out there in a seven game winner go home. Series. And I'll add this too, Ashley. Given you know some of the conversation around Isaac last year earlier this year as a rookie it shows how far he's come and look he's still got a ways to go especially on the offensive end of the floor he's just not as reliable offensively as you would like and I think the Knicks are going to take a drastic dare approach against him you know remember Mm -hmm. back in the day when when teams just ignored Tony Allen completely and said yeah or Russell Westbrook like I think it's going to be that level drastic with the Knicks and I think it may have to be, especially if they're trying to, like, focus more attention on Darius or Donovan. Well, we so, basically saw the Hawks that felt like try to do that in the play-in game last year. Right? They were, like, daring him to I mean, do whatever he wanted offensively. I mean, the Nets did it. They, yeah. they used Seth Curry as his primary defender. Yes. Seth was playing on one bad leg. And um, Isaac got three straight threes, and he got yanked out of the game because he missed them all. Yeah. Um, and then he was out of the starting lineup in the next playing game against the Hawks because the Cavs wanted a more offensive lineup and they wanted, like, Trey Young to not have anywhere to hide on the defensive end of the floor. So, like, it goes to show, even though Isaac has a ways to go, it goes to show how he's changed the perception around him that people are worried about whether he can play in this series. Yeah. And I think that shows that people recognize the value that he brings to the table even though his offense continues to come, even though his jump shot can be spotty at times. There are things that he does um, to impact winning that uh, nobody else on this roster does at the level that he does them. 
All right. Good stuff, Chris. We will be back on Friday. I will be back hosting. Hayden Grove will be back on Saturday with Chris after the post game. Um, so until then, head over to cleveland.com slash Cavs to check out all of Chris's coverage. I'll, I might write a few things in between now and Saturday when the game is played. Um, we do have practice the next couple of days here as well. So again, be sure to click the blue bar at the top of the Cavs homepage on the site if you have an interest in becoming one of the, Chris's insiders. That's when you get the subtext. You can also text this number, write it down, 216 216- Two zero eight four four nine nine. You'll get all of that insider information, and really, at a time like this, there's going to be news basically every day as long as the Cavs are in mm-hmm. it right now. So it's definitely something to consider because I know Chris sends out so much insider info through there. I do. Like I said, I alluded to some of the stuff, and and that's the thing. Like I don't put all of my stuff that I learn um, in covering this team on Twitter. I save it for my uh, insiders. So. They get some good, good nuggets. They were ahead of the Isaac Okoro curve. They knew the J.B. Bickerstaff story that I was working on. They get the starting lineup as soon as I get it. All that kind of stuff. Like, who's going to be the eighth man in this rotation coming up um, based on things that I've heard, based on things that, that I've gathered. Like, all that stuff goes there because I don't put it on Twitter. All right, so one last time, you can sign up for that by going to cleveland.com slash Cavs, clicking the blue banner at the top of the page, or texting 216-208-4499. All right, Chris, good stuff. I will see you out in Independence this week, my friend. Sounds good. Can't wait. Saturday's right around the corner.